In your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 12. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. How a king enters a, a city uh, says a lot. It reveals something about the people who are welcoming him. Uh, it reveals something about their expectations of why he might be coming and, and how they're receiving him. And, and it reveals everything about who that king is. Today's passage looks at how Jesus enters Jerusalem. We uh, sometimes call it the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. This is looking at Jesus' last week of his life and his final entry into the city of Jerusalem. So hear God's word from John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, would you bless us with your word? that your spirit might give us understanding in our mind and, and move us to affections of knowing your love and your peace through Jesus Christ. We pray for that understanding to, to move us to greater ways of living our life as your disciples. Help the teacher as he speaks from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you can uh, also tell a lot about uh, a a historical event by its parades. Parades commemorate festivities. They commemorate national holidays. For example, the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Day Parade. Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's something we look forward to every year in our home, and it's the the celebration and the music and the, the floats and all of these things commemorating the day. Parades celebrate victories of sports teams that win a national championship. They, they can commemorate in the national life of a country military victories. But they also can be the, the way we um, welcome 
uh, as a city or a nation, the arrival of dignitaries, such as a president or a monarch of another country. I would imagine that uh, Baltimore was jumping um, in 1995 when the Pope came to visit. There's a There is a pomp and circumstance. There's a a reason for the arrival. There is uh, anticipation for for someone's coming. But another type of parade, but that gives us a very different mental picture, is marching on a city. Thankfully, in our country, uh, more often than not, we experience marching as a method of peaceful protesting. But But marching on a city historically ushered in the final stages of a military campaign or it was the actual celebrations of military victory. As an example for this, think of the Union troops marching into Richmond in 1865 or or the Allied forces pushing towards Berlin in 1945. Depending on the circumstances, people have all kinds of expectations about what a group that's entering into the city, what that might mean for them. It could be welcomed with rejoicing. It could be unwelcomed with deep sadness, shame, or fear. And sometimes we don't fully grasp what's happening during the actual events. We, we come to understand them more fully only later when we reflect upon their meaning and and reflect upon their impact. Today's passage discusses what people might have experienced from Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem. And likewise, they didn't fully expect or, or understand what Jesus was doing. Today's passage invites us to remember these events of Jesus's final visit to Jerusalem to better understand the significance of his final days for our salvation. So we're going to look at this passage in three main sections. Verses 9 through 11, the crowd's hype. Verses 12 through 15, the king's parade. Verses 16 through 19, the people's response. So look at verses 9 through 11. The crowd's hype helps set the stage for this event in Jesus' life. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus and his disciples are, are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, The Passover is the high point of Jewish religious festivals celebrating the Lord, delivering his people out of bondage from the Egyptians. And here in this context, as the stage is being set, Jesus and his disciples are arriving in Bethany. Bethany is a village just outside of Jerusalem. If you were were to picture Columbia Town Center and walk to Longreach, That's the distance roughly between Jerusalem and and Bethany. And it's at this place that Jesus is spending time with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it's here that people are starting to get hyped for his coming. And it's from here Jesus is walking back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem for the next several days of, of Holy Week. 
as you go through the gospel accounts. Now, you may look at the gospels and say, well, different authors say different things. Well, yes, um, that's nothing to be worried about. That's just looking at how each author is conveying their purposes and how they're giving their, uh, their testimony, their account of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. And so each author has a, has a unique, unique way of telling it, and there's different purposes. And so um, we're looking at John um, this morning, and we'll look at John um, later on in the week with our evening services. And so at this point, the, the news of Jesus is, is starting to spread, and, and the crowds are beginning to gather. Now, what groups are mentioned? Look there in the text. Of course, we can see that Jesus is with his disciples. He's with his friends. Lazarus is specifically mentioned. We can picture around this meal and around this village this large crowd that's beginning to gather. They're, they're curious to see Jesus again. The, the people, though, are, um, of course, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's interesting. But there still seems to be very captivated by Lazarus. He seems to be uh, a main attraction as the local Ripley's believe it or not. And we see the chief priests. Now this group designates the the prominent ruling um, priests who were members of the Sanhedrin council. And John tells of their desire to put Lazarus to death too. Why? He's pausing in the narrative and to, to say what's happening and Why? John tells us that Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead um, earlier in chapter 11, and as this is um, gaining momentum and hearing of this account, more and more people were believing in Jesus for the simple fact that they, they knew that Lazarus was dead in a tomb, but now was a walking billboard for the ministry of Jesus. So the stage is being set. Jesus begins his final days with his uh, with a dinner with his friends in Bethany, and the crowds are excited to see him, but the religious le- leaders are perhaps anxious to see him. Just earlier, in the end of chapter 11, John tells us that the religious leaders were even wondering if Jesus would come back to Jerusalem here at the Passover at all. Things were already beginning to heat up. Jesus had withdrawn for a while. And so they were wondering if he would even come back. But, but as he does, um, they were, or if he did, um, they were wanting people to let them know so that they could arrest him. So this has already been brewing for, for a little bit of time. And so Jesus will soon enter Jerusalem for the very last time. And each day of his final days is one day closer to the day of the whole point of his life and ministry. So each of the gospel writers are really zooming in at these points of the story and giving details of of what's happening each day and in each interaction. There is a building of suspense of what's about to happen. So as the stage is being set, we move into the next day, uh, verses 12 through 15. The basic sequence of events are are given here. The, The day... The, uh, the, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The king's parade tells us the significance of Jesus' entering Jerusalem. This is the basic sequence. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. People hear about it. They're expecting him. They start waving palm branches, and they quote a psalm, and Jesus is riding on a donkey. That's, that's what's happening. And some people are excited. A lot of people are confused. What's happening? Well, these verses highlight two significant details that help us understand what's happening here. First, in the Jewish world, palm branches were a common symbol of righteousness. And they were associated with the Feast of Booths. It was an Old Testament festival. And by the time of Jesus, they had also come to take on uh, an association of the, the rededication of the temple during the Maccabean revolts. So think Hanukkah, that time in the, 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 the history of Israel of what's happening. And so they are waving something. Not, they're not just saying hi. They're, they're taking symbols that mean something to their imaginations of what Jesus is doing. And they're waving these branches and they're quoting Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26. But not only in the Jewish world, but the palm branches were also significant symbol of victory in the Roman world too. So there are connotations of uh, what God is doing to bring about the, the deliverance of Israel. And John is making a deeper connection with the coming of the king to be the one that does this, that is going to be ushering in victory. The, the psalm that, that he quotes, uh, Psalm 118, Hosanna um, means save us, deliver us. Most of the crowd perhaps were hoping that Jesus would be a political and military leader that would deliver independence from Rome. Now, if that was the hope of many, the second detail about Jesus riding on a donkey helps us give a correction to the misunderstanding of what kind of king is coming to Jerusalem. And here, John references another Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 9, verse 9. And in quoting Zechariah, indeed, the king will come with righteousness and salvation. But how will the Lord come to deliver his people? Upon a donkey? That's not right. That doesn't fit with the power and the might of Rome. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? The hype from the crowds were casting their hopes and dreams upon this leader, this Jesus of Nazareth who's coming to deliver, coming to save. This situation might have made more sense if he was coming on a majestic and, and powerful war horse or if he was riding on a chariot with, with his armies behind him. Would it not? We would come to expect that just as they might have. 
But rather, Jesus is entering the city to take his rightful place upon the throne of David, but he doesn't come with political will or military might. He comes riding on a humble donkey as the humble shepherd king that he is. He's telling us something about him and his kingdom by his parade. He's readjusting the expectations that are, um, that are, that are just starting to boil over with tension in those moments and in these days. And so this brings us to verse 16 through 19 for the third section that, that we're beginning to see the people's responses and how their responses highlights um, how the different groups began to understand what was happening with what Jesus was doing. First, let's look at the crowds. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Maybe they were a little ambivalent. We don't really know what this means. We just know because we've heard and I actually maybe know Lazarus. And so this sign uh, of miracle is what I'm interested to see what's going to play out. This miracle worker is coming to Jerusalem during the Passover. I kind of want to see what's about to happen. Second, let's look at the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're talking to themselves. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, the the Pharisees were uh, part of the Sanhedrin council. Um, They are often, um, well, they're actually positive uh, remarks in the New Testament for the Pharisees, and there's uh, critiques of the Pharisees as well. But the Pharisees uh, believed and followed what we would call the Old Testament Scripture, They cultivated oral traditions that sought to explain and prescribe customs so that they might better observe Old Testament laws. They're not so much intrigued or curious about Jesus coming like the crowds were. Uh, They were nervous about Jesus' influence upon the people and how that might upset the religious uh, and political status quo, the balance that is in Israel at this time between them and Rome. And, and, and lastly, I want to bring you to the third group here in this passage that gives us a little bit more of a springboard into why I'm wanting to talk about this passage today on Palm Sunday as we go into meditations and reflections upon Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in this upcoming week. Look at the disciples' reaction. His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had had been written about him and had been done to him. It's John's editorial comment. Uh, It's refreshing uh, to us, the reader, is it not? It's refreshing that here they are. They're in the parade and they don't know why. They don't understand. But John makes this remark that it was until after Jesus was glorified that they remembered these things. Now, what does that phrase glorified mean? Well, it often means in the Gospels when he is being lifted up in his crucifixion, 
and, and his death, and, but then his resurrection. It's, it's kind of collapsing together what's about to happen. His, his death on a cross and his being raised from a tomb. This resurrection is bringing about future glory that is breaking into the present. And it's after that point the disciples begin to understand more and more of what these things mean. It's very comforting. It's very comforting to me that we can spend a lifetime pursuing and thinking and meditating upon these things and we're, we're only getting into deeper and deeper layers. It's comforting because I forget these things just like they do. It's, it's comforting that I don't understand the full picture of how these things are about what was written about him and what had been done to him, and yet it is the rhythm of the church for thousands of years to remember these things, to proclaim the Lord's life, death, and resurrection for salvation, to proclaim that death through the cross is the path to glory, that we experience the full knowledge of God and the, and the complete forgiveness of our sins. They remembered these things more deeply after he was glorified. So they're along for the ride. They're watching. They're listening. The, the, the intensity is building, and they themselves also have their own expectations. If you remember, he has a very ragtag group of disciples that have a very different view of what's happening with Roman, um, the, the relationship with Rome. They're on different sides of the aisle, so to speak, at times. And yet Jesus is even redirecting their assumptions about what he's doing. And so for this, for this year, for, for today, for we're having a, a, an evening service on Thursday, we're having an evening service on Friday, we're having a, a glorious morning service celebrating Jesus' resurrection, which we celebrate every week, by the way. But as we have a heightened sense of these events, we're invited to remember these things, to, to ponder them in our heart. If, if it's not something that you believe, the invitation is still to you to, to investigate the claims of Christ, to investigate fully that Jesus is or isn't who he said he was, to investigate him fully, to consider these things. And if you are a believer, it is something that is great treasure to your heart of God's love and the, the very scope uh, and the very, the very far reaches that he goes to restore all that is broken, to reclaim all that is lost, and to redeem all that is his. It's comforting that the disciples didn't know what was going on. I feel that way a lot. So let's remember these things. Now, we don't know with precision how things happened. Um, the, the gospel writers do not give an itinerary um, of uh, the events of Jesus' life. Um, you know, we don't see that Jesus will be meeting with the Pharisees on Thursday, uh, 3 p.m. after lunch. You know, we don't, we don't have the specificity of these things, but in general, we can see the narrative flow and we get a picture of this week, this final week of his life 
And each day walking closer to the final day that, that is the very purpose, the whole point of his life. May we not lose sight of that. May we truly ponder that. So on Sunday, we see him entering the temple. Or I'm sorry, he's entering Jerusalem. On Monday, he has this obscure uh, interaction with a fig tree. He goes into the temple and, and clears it out. On Tuesday, Jesus' disciples see the fig tree, and they see that it has been withered, and they don't understand, and they're asking Jesus about it. He teaches in the temple and has these tense discussions with various groups of people. He's having a significant conversation with his disciples, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. On Wednesday, we, um, Jesus is continuing to teach in the temple, um, and the, the religious leaders on, uh, that are on the Sanhedrin are beginning to, to flesh out their plot of what's about to transpire their plot to kill Jesus. Wednesday slash Thursday are preparations being made for the Passover celebration, which Jesus celebrated with his disciples on Thursday. And so we see in this week, we have the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem with a meal with his friends. And he ends his journey to the cross with a meal with his friends. And there's going to be another meal, as, as Jason mentioned earlier. This is the, the, the very scope of our hope in God's salvation. He shares a meal with us. He calls his friends. It's on Thursday evening that that they go to, to the, the Garden of Gethsemane after that final meal to pray. And it's either late Thursday or early Friday that, that Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. And he's arrested. He undergoes two trials. You might call one a religious trial with the Sanhedrin and the other a Roman civil political trial with Pilate. On Friday, he's crucified. He dies and he's buried. On Saturday, he's still dead, and he's still buried. But on Sunday, witnesses find an empty tomb, and Jesus makes a series of appearances to his followers and to to groups of people after his resurrection. It wasn't until after he was glorified that they made more sense of what happened. So when you think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, he is the rightful heir of the son of David, as the son of David. He is the rightful king of God's people. But he comes in on a donkey. He doesn't come in to conquer. He comes to lay down his life. If Saturday rolled into Sunday and he was still in the tomb, he would be another dead man. This is the hope of Christianity. This message rings loud and clear because that's not the story. The story is the dead man came back to life 
And there is rejoicing, there is celebrations, there's like, oh my gosh, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand in a new way, but yet all of a sudden I'm understanding in new, fresh ways. And all of these things that Jesus has been doing in his life are clicking. Fuller understanding of God's redemption. So we don't understand the the entry into Jerusalem as a conquering king. We understand his entering into Jerusalem as a triumph because he's coming as a conquered king, one that lays his own life down for the sake of many so that through his death we share in it and through his resurrection we share in it. He is both speaking the gospel and he's Uh, embodying the gospel with his very body of what God is doing. He is walking into Jerusalem on a donkey with humility, and he's going to die on a cross in humiliation. This is the trajectory of God's heart. He lifts up the, the humble and he puts away and he puts down the proud. The path to glory is through the cross and denying yourself and taking it up and following Jesus. These are the core concepts of Christianity of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to receive him by faith that he is your savior, to repent and to believe that what he does in his life, his teachings, and what he does on Friday is for you, and it is accomplished, and it is finished. Remember these things that had been written about him and what had been done to him. Because the, the mystery of Christianity is what, what had been done to him is transmitted, it's imputed, we have all these theological terms, it is exchanged and given to you. The benefits of what he accomplishes is for you and for me. Our sins are forgiven. We are no longer under the power of sin, but we are resting in the freedom and the joy and the fulfillment of what it means to be uh, redeemed in Christ. Amen. That is the victory. The victory comes through the cross before the empty grave. How often we flip that. How often we get scared and we think we have to lift up other tools, other mechanisms, other methods that seeks to kind of reverse that order. To pursue glory, we pursue strength, intelligence, might, possessions, safety, security. These things that elevate ourselves so that we might feel safe and okay. The gospel paradigm is reversed. That life comes through death. Because death is not the end of the story. But it is swallowed up. It is defeated. And I love the, f- the phrase by the, the old theologian John Owen, the death of death and the death of Christ. Where is your sting? It still exists because it's painful to lose our loved ones, 
But it is because of this week that we can rejoice because it's not the end of the story. Death is not final. What's beautiful about the gospel narrative, and I invite you, I encourage you to to read through John. I invite you to flip through and compare how the different gospel writers are are, uh, recounting these days. But to remember these things of what had been written about him and what had been done to him, because this is for your salvation. Rejoice in what is offered to you in, in the gospel Rejoice in what is offered in the person of Jesus Christ. Here comes your king. He is glorious indeed, but he comes through the cross first. So as we meditate on the cross today and every week, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, it's not because it's this special time of a special celebration, although it is that. But this is the way of the Christian. This is the way of the cross as we follow Jesus. And we find that he gives us his spirit to help us, to be our comforter, to to be the one that brings us into greater understanding of these things, but also to equip us so that we might walk in his ways. It's comforting to me because I don't know always what's happening, just as the disciples didn't. We don't always understand present events until we understand God's redemptive purposes. We don't always understand present circumstances until we put them in the context of future glory. We sometimes mistake God's kingship in our lives for the kingdoms of this world, understood through human power and strength, instead of kingdom understood through God's glory and grace. What is being always offered in the life of Jesus, but it's heightened in these narratives, is Jesus merely a prophet giving an important truth about what it means to be human or or to live in this world or, or some sort of divine power, universal truth? Is Jesus a man with a subversive program, a subversive plan, Uh, strategy and a vision against the politics of Rome and the religion of men? Or is Jesus a blasphemer, falsely claiming to be God? These are important questions that different groups in uh, the text, in the gospel accounts, are wrestling with who is Jesus and what has he done? So I offer to you today in, in conclusion that, that, that Jesus is the prophet, the true prophet that, that proclaims who God is and the way to him. He's also a man that, that does subvert what is happening in the kingdoms of the world because he's offering a different paradigm through the, the lens of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is no blasphemer because through him, we can know God because the mystery of Christianity is that he is also God and we worship him. John is drawing his audience into this tension of who we understand Jesus to be. This is the, the path for the Christian and it's the offer to anybody, to all, to hear of his life. 
to ponder its meaning and to consider how they might respond by faith. Depending on how you answer those questions, is, it makes all the difference in our lives. And I want to conclude with Jesus' words in, later in chapter 12, uh, verses 44 through 50. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus comes as the way, the truth, and the life. To know of your Creator is to know your Redeemer. To be reconciled is to know that it is this man, Jesus, who is rightfully both the king but a servant, who dies on a Roman cross for the forgiveness of sin. He makes atonement for God's people. We live in a time in history and a culture um, of the world that is not enchanted by those glorious beauties and mysteries. And so this year, I invite you, even this week, to be re-enchanted with this story, this truth of, a, of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who became man, who entered into a city who he weeps over. Because from time past, God has made a covenant and he remains faithful to his covenant. And he enters that city knowing he will be rejected. But he loves and he extends grace and mercy. And all those who look upon the cross by faith takes great joy and sees it through the lens of, of Jesus' love. That it's not shame. There's nothing to be fear, feared of. Only rejoicing and only joy in God as we are hidden in Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we meditate on your word, as we are just captivated by the story of these details and the historicity of it and, and the complexity of it, may we also worship. May we stand in awe of its beauty of its fulfillment of your scripture, but also what is accomplished by our Savior's death and resurrection. And it is him we rejoice. Hosanna. We wave our palm branches to you because it is in you that there is victory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.